Are you ready to co-create the world we want to live in? Then join our community at Our Body Politic, a podcast by and for women of color that offers a new view of the news. We're making politics personal with me, host Farai Chidea. Each week I get real with women you need to hear from, like Senator Tammy Duckworth, Representative Maxine Waters, and actor Anna DeVere Smith. Subscribe to Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director at JMU Civic. My name is Isabella Lindblad. I'm a Democracy Fellow here at JMU, and I am a freshman biology major. Every year on April 22nd, over 190 countries recognize the anniversary of the birth of the modern environmental movement, otherwise known as Earth Day. What began in the 1970s as an awakening of public consciousness to the environmental impacts of industrial expansion and activity, Earth Day has now developed into the largest secular observance in the world of the negative effects humanity has had on the natural world. Detailed by the Earth Day Network, creative and innovative methods to respect our natural surroundings have been adopted around the globe on Earth Day's past. For example, in 2011, 28 million trees were planted in Afghanistan by the Earth Day Network to replenish the forestry that had been previously lost. In 2012, 100,000 people rode bikes in China to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions and to preserve fuel. These examples represent a small scope of what the international community is capable of doing to give back to and to protect our environment. The theme of Earth Day 2021 is action on climate change. Joining us for this episode is Dr. Tobias Gerken, Assistant Professor in the School of Integrated Sciences and Technology at James Madison University, whose research focuses on environmental and atmospheric science. Welcome, Dr. Gerken. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you could start by sharing how you first became interested in environmental and atmospheric science. Um, Sure. So I have actually to say that when I went to high school, um, I kind of like like the sciences, and I like physics, like biology, like chemistry. Um, I also like geography, and I always thought that kind of like doing like a single science itself is is kind of like a tiny bit boring. And I didn't really think about environmental science at first, but I was kind of trying to figure out like what I wanted to do, and so I just ended up um, studying environmental science. Um, I loved it, and because it's a really nice thing of being able to not only combine like the biology, the ecology, the, the physics, the chemistry, you all, need to all, do all of these things in order to really understand the Earth system. And so that was something that I always found really neat, which is also something which I really like about being here at, at JMU. So I'm in the ISAT program, which stands for Integrated Science and Technology, which exactly has this focus, trying to understand systems and how they interact with each other. And so this is like a really one of the things that I really like and why I also like really like working on the environment, the earth, the climate, because it gives you this this way of, of really thinking about problems broadly, but then also like digging into like the, the individual processes if you want to. You've conducted some novel research on land to atmosphere coupling and feedback. Can you explain what land to atmosphere coupling and feedback is for our listeners and share some of your findings with regards to the factors that contribute to different hotspots around the globe? Sure. So let me first 
start with feedbacks and especially like feedbacks in the climate system. So if you think about the climate as well, uh, overall, we know that it's, that it's warming and that it's changing. Um, and that's driven by carbon dioxide emissions and other greenhouse gases. Um, but if we think about feedbacks, then one of the things that we need to realize is that while the system changes, there are certain processes within the system that can either like accelerate the change or can slow the change down. So for example, if you think about ice in the Arctic, so we have these like large, large sea, this large sea ice and that basically acts as a giant mirror. So if there is ice, um, energy is being reflected um, and the earth warms less strong. But if the earth is warming, then some of this ice is gonna go away so there is less, reflect, um, less reflection of this, this energy. And so you get even get, um, so the warming can accelerate. So that is one um, aspect of a, what we call a positive feedback, where change that is already happening further accelerates. There's also negative feedbacks in the system. Um, so for example, one, one example would be if you have a forest and you add more CO2 to the atmosphere, then that may actually lead to forests growing faster and taking out carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which then would slow climate change. And so understanding these feedbacks is really, really important if we want to understand the magnitudes of, of climate change and how it develops. Because we, um, and I want to be really clear here, so we do understand the basic mechanism, which is we add carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, which because we understand the physical system and we understand the physical properties of these gases, we know that this increases the temperatures um, because they, uh, they absorb infrared radiation. Um, but what we don't necessarily know is like the, the whole magnitude of what these effects are gonna be. And so in order to understand that, because we have these like knobs which can either accelerate or slow things down, we need to understand these feedbacks. And in my case, so what I've been working on is on what we call coupling, which is if we have certain elements in the system, so for example, in this case, the land surface and the atmosphere, and then we want to understand that if like something happens at the land surface, um, how does this affect the atmosphere? Or are, there, are there things connected or are they less connected? And in our case, we were mostly looking at water. So in case of a um, if you have a wet surface, so for example, your, your soils are very moist, then you get more evapotranspiration, which is water going from the surface into the atmosphere. And then you can ask yourself whether this affects, for example, precipitation. Um, and all of these things are really important to understand if we want to um, model climate, because we have climate models that um, that have these, these processes inside, but we don't necessarily know how strong they are. They may not be as um, as strongly connected the models as they are in reality, or the models may actually react faster than reality. So by, by basically understanding um, feedbacks and couplings in observations, so what's actually happening in, 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 in reality, uh, we, can, we can use this to evaluate climate models and make sure that they represent the reality as, as good as they can be. And so that's like something that, that I believe is really important. Um, with respect to like my own findings, so one of the things that we really found is how important water is in the in the Earth system and in 
I mean, we all know it in society. We all need water. We need to drink it. If we, we need it for agriculture, um, for many, many things. But especially in like areas that are what we call semi-arid, so areas that have very seasonal precipitation that are sometimes dry, sometimes moist, you can really see how uh, the addition of water or the change in water like really changes like the d dynamics of the system. And those are the areas that are most likely very vulnerable to climate change because they they rely on these like water impacts, and so if global precipitation patterns are changing, then we need to understand like what this does. I wonder if you could share what you've learned from some of the global hotspots or some of the comparisons, um, for example, between the United States and South Africa. Okay, so there are some of these regions in the world which we think are which we call hotspots of coupling. So those are areas where processes at the surface are very tightly coupled to what's happening in the atmosphere. And one of those is actually in the in the United States. If you think about the Midwest, which is one of the large areas of production for crops, such as corn, um, such as soybeans, um, wheat. And I've been doing work, research at the Montana State University. Let's, so if we think about the United States, um, and the, especially the Midwestern United States, which is a large breadbasket of the world, so we have a lot of corn production, a lot of wheat production, um, soy. And these are, this is a region where, in many cases, um, water, especially when you go up to Montana, I've been working at Montana State University on that, where um, water can be really scarce, and you don't necessarily have um, have much resilience in the system. So, if like uh, rain patterns change, that may have real impacts on on agriculture because there's not that much there. And so, one of the things that we found out in in some of the research that we have been doing is that that these systems actually are tightly linked. So, if you have more water in the system, that means you get more precipitation, which actually means that, for example, agriculture is easier to do. But if something changes, then the reverse is also true. So, so these are systems that are really, um, or have the potential to be strongly affected by drought, which is, for example, something that we see and saw in 2017, when um, there was a really, really strong drought, one of the strongest droughts at, um, in the northern Great Plains. So if you think about North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, um, things that um, actually was one of the, I think in Montana was the strongest drought ever on record. And so better understanding these dynamics is really important in order to make sure that we build systems that are, that are resilient. Um, to change. You have been involved with important research in recent years, including NASA's project on atmospheric carbon and transport in America and the Department of Energy's Green Ocean Amazon experiment. How, how have your findings from these collaborative research projects informed your understanding about the extent of environmental destruction and climate change? Sure. So um, let me start with, with some of the work I've been doing in the Amazon as part of, of, of a project called Green Ocean Amazon. And one of the things that I found, and this is less a scientific result, more and more an observation, is that we have been conducting field research in in the Amazon near a large city called Manaus. 
Um, and it's it's a four. We we conducted this research in a forest reserve and. Before going, you always think that, well, the rainforest is going to be this pristine thing that has been there for a very long time. There's very little human imp impact because there's not many people living there. But then you actually fly into a city like Manaus, which is right in the center of Amazonia. It's more than 2 million people. It has heavy industry. So for example, um, Harley-Davidson is assembling motorcycles in, in Manaus um, because it's a tax-free zone. And so there's, there's lots of heavy industry which produces a lot of air pollution, um, which affects the forest. Also, because there's there's industry, you'll you create lots of jobs, which means people are going to move there. And so over time, like the city starts like encroaching into the forest, and you actually realize that even in like these very very remote places that you are, you do see that that like human impacts are are everywhere. Um, so that's I think one of so the realizations that have been coming, like how much, as humans, we are we are changing this planet. Yeah. So so one of the things that we really see is that if you um, go pretty much anywhere in the United States, any kind of forest, any kind of like system, um, all of these environments that we very often see that are nature are actually like really strongly used. So if you think about um, going out around here in Harrisonburg, like pretty much everything that we see. Our, our fields that, that are used for agriculture. Um, we ha you, the forests are being used, and they're, they're, there's logging. There are many, many different uses. And all of those uses are good, and we need those. Um, but we do need to make sure that we are using like, the resources around us, our natural resources, in a way that, that is really sustainable. Um, and so I think that is one of the sort of takeaways that if I look at the environment is actually how much like human impact there is like everywhere around us. And it goes from like places where like lots of people live to even to like the Amazon rainforest where you don't necessarily think about um, like lots and lots of human impacts. What we are doing and we need to understand these systems so that basically like the way we impact them like doesn't need to negative change. Um, so so that's that's one thing. And then thinking about um, the, the Act America, which was trying to better understand um, carbon dioxide transport in the atmosphere. Um, so one thing that you, you just see is how much like carbon dioxide concentrations are actually increasing. So because the project was going over like several years. And you can see like in every single year um, that atmospheric carbon dioxide is going up. So that's the first thing. And then on top of that, um, in order to understand like, what are the systems that are adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, so for example, burning of fossil fuels or vegetation in winter, and what are the systems that are taking out carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and that's um, vegetation during summer. And the biosphere, which um, like, can both emit and, uh, and take up carbon dioxide. So biosphere is everything that lives. If you think about plants, forests, um, fields, um, like they, um, it partially balances what we take, what we what we are putting in from from industry. Not all of it. So we are adding carbon dioxide every single year, um, but some of it is gonna gonna be taken out by biosphere. And so we need to understand like what are actually the limits of like these systems. So what happens if we um, add too much carbon dioxide or if we increase the temperatures too much because of climate change. So 
um, how does the biosphere change and what are the dynamics in there? And that's like something that, that is still not very well understood. Um, one example there would be that um, there have been just like a couple of weeks ago, there's been, been, been reporting in the press about how the Amazon rainforest actually no longer is a sink of carbon. So sink being something taking out carbon dioxide of the atmosphere, that it actually may, may have turned into, into a source. Um, and so if you think about these like large like biosystems, whether they remain sinks or sources in the future, um, is like really uncertain. And we don't understand necessarily very well what the certain limits are in hmm. those systems. How should scientists who have advanced a deeper understanding of the environmental and atmospheric science behind climate change inform policy and decision-making processes? Um, that's, that's a really good question, and I wish I had sort of a, a really good answer to that. But I think what is important to realize is that, um, that on one hand, like there is... Um, there's the scientific process. So we, um, as scientists, we, we make observations, we gather data, we analyze data, and we, we communicate this data. Um, but at the same time, I think, if we then think about decision-making, there's something else that needs to come into play. And so scientists should not necessarily be the people that, that make the decision. So we do have a democratic process. We have, we have like elected representatives who who are there in order to, to balance different, different perspectives and like different, different policy goals. And so science can, can help shape policy goals by, by providing evidence, um, but it can't necessarily like guide you on, on, on what you should be doing. Um, so I think that's, that's one important thing, that just because we have like the scientific information doesn't necessarily mean that we exactly then know like how to act on it, and, and I think there are the, the democratic process in, in getting from, from information to evidence-based policies is like a really interesting one and something that um, I think we're all kind of struggling a bit on, on, on understanding how to best, best do that. Um, the other thing that I think is important is to realize that within the scientific community, there's really open discussion about like aspects of our science. So if you go to a scientific conference, you'll find lots and lots of disagreement um, because people are um, proposing certain theories and we're working on, on like things that, are, that, that we still don't know and still don't understand very well. And, but at the same time, they are parts of, sort of what we would call a scientific consensus. So for example, on climate change, the scientific consensus would be that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, such as methane. Um, and if we eat, keep adding these to the atmosphere, which we're doing because we're burning fossil fuels, um, we are conducting, conducting agriculture in ways that, that also emits carbon, di uh, carbon dioxide and, and other greenhouse gases, um, we would expect warming to occur, which is also something that we observe. So we have data that, that things are warming. We have a mechanism um, which like is in line with our scientific understanding. Um, and we, we observe the effects because the, pla clem the planet is warming. What we are still struggling to do is to understand the exact effects of that. Um, and, and there like, is, is an endless amount of, 
of, of levels of these kind of effects. So we'll never have absolute certainty um, until things are actually happening, what very, very specifically is going to happen at a certain location in a certain amount of time. But we do know the general trajectory. And so therefore, if we think about things like climate change, um, what's important for, I think, policymakers to understand, and I think most policymakers do understand that, is that there's always going to be some uncertainty in like what exactly is going to happen. Um, but that doesn't like challenge the original like premise that, that, for example, climate change is real. And so being able to work with this uncertainty is like something that's, that, that I believe is really important. Just as a follow-up, I wonder what advice you would give to policymakers in terms of how they can make more informed decisions about addressing climate change. Uh, Really good question. I think, I mean, speaking to scientists help. Um, learning, um, understanding that that there's different different language. So I think scientists think about uncertainty in very different ways than than politicians are doing. Um, because, and also being able to commu like what this actually means. Um, to give you like one example about how difficult it is to come um, to to communicate uncertainty. Um, so if you listen to the weather reporter, if you look into weather reports like online, one of the things that you'll see is that there's a 50% chance of, of rain or a 40% chance of rain. And the mass majority of people, if you ask them what this actually means, will not actually know the correct answer to that. Um, because these like uncertainty um, quantifications are really difficult and they require like knowledge and they require expertise and so being and that's I think something for, for us as scientists maybe more as, as policymakers would be to to think of about ways of how we can communicate uncertainties while at the same time like making sure that that this doesn't kind of um, undermine the overall message that that like despite that, that we still have to like do things despite the uncertainties happening there because the uncertainty doesn't mean that it's not happening. It's just we don't know the exact amount of what is going to happen. Moving on, why is commemorating Earth Day important to you? Um, so, I mean, I have to say it's, it's just like a good way of, of, of taking a pause this year. Um, like this has been like, a, I think for all of us, a really challenging, challenging year. And um, especially thinking about being, or at least, so this is my first year at JMU as well. And um, like this year has really been a scramble where kind of like I've always been in the now or in the, like I have to do this now because I have to teach a class tomorrow or because there's the, this like deadline that I have to meet. meet. And so um, I think thinking about like a little bit more into the future is like something that that is like really timely, um, especially since I now have a like almost two year old child, or we have an almost two year old child. So, and you start thinking about like what has the future like in stock for for like all of us. And so, thinking about that, um, I think is something like really important. Do we know how the pandemic has affected climate change in any way, or some of these systems related um, to climate change? I think. So, so there, there's a few things that we've seen during, during the pandemic. So because carbon dioxide emissions are mostly a function of economic activity, they have been 
going down during during the pandemic. Um, especially if you think about transportation, so people are driving less, and transportation in the U.S. is roughly probably like 30% of, of, of CO2 emissions, roughly. Um, but this is a, a more or less a temporary blip because our econo economic activity has been, been going down. Um, there, there's not necessarily a really lasting consequence of that. So as soon as like economic activity picks back up, I mean, the emissions are going to be, be back, back there. Um, aside from that, um, I would have to do some more research and what other effects there may have been, but that's kind of like the first thing that comes to mind. We asked this question to all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Very good question. Um, I think, and if I think sort of in, with the hat of, of an environmental scientist or a climate scientist in this, this case, um, I think one of the things that um, sometimes seems to be a problem in, in the current system is that that there are so many things that have to happen in the now, that, that there are so many short-term problems, that being able to address some of like these really, really large long-term problems, such as climate change, such as um, what is a society that we want to live in or we want to like pass on to our children, is something that's, that's really hard to, um, to achieve um, if everyone, if there are so many pressing problems in the now and everyone is is constantly scrambling of, of trying to make sure that um, that there's a current budget passed, that there is um, a current, everything that's currently up needs to be dealt with as well. And so I don't really have a good solution, but finding ways of, of making sure that some of those sort of long burning questions that, that we are facing are being addressed and that people realize that, that there is kind of a long-term like perspective on certain things, I think would would really help in in yeah strengthen democratic participate participation. Dr. Tobias Gerken, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Thank you thank so you. much. Yeah, thank you.